0: Well, good morning. So it's a privilege again to be here. You know, (laughs) there's a lot of people right now that would love to be out and about. And here we are. You know, this is an opportunity to be in the Lord's house. And uh, to those of you that are home, we welcome you as well as you're listening in. And uh, we're going to go to where there's life. Uh, Quite frankly, if you're looking for life and something encouraging today, it's not from me. It's going to come from God and His Word and His Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you do not have a Bible with you, uh, our ushers are coming up the aisle now. Just simply put your hand up and they'll be glad to provide you one. If you do not own a Bible, this Bible can be yours and uh, as a gift from us. If you have a Bible app, we use uh, the version on, as far as online, there's an app called that, and in there, if you go to the Events tab, you will discover that we have our outline in there, and it'll have all the scriptures uh, that we are using this morning. So if you're new here, my name is Tony Hunt, I'm pastor here at LAFC, and we've been in a series since the beginning of September, looking at the book of John. Looking at specifically the Jesus encounters that that have happened in there that can help us better understand who Jesus is and what that means for us. In fact, in the book of John, he writes these things. If you go to the very end of the book of John, to the final chapter... It says uh, that in verse 24, it says that it is, this is the disciple who testified these things, who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Those are the final words of John when he is acknowledging that there is so much more that could have been written down. But did not. But in particular, you have to make a decision. If you walk and journey with someone and you want to tell the story of their life, you're you're going to have to choose that which is going to be most beneficial for others to hear. I have personally enjoyed uh, reading about the things around the the leaders of World War II. I, I don't know why since I was a little kid. Fascinated by World War II and also fascinated by the Civil War and reading about the leaders of that time. And one of the leaders I'm very fascinated about of the World War II history is Winston Churchill. And, you know, we have his memoirs, we have his diaries, and we're able to read those things. But there are perspectives by people around Winston Churchill that that are very enlightening, that help us understand his personality, help us understand how he handled that moment. We We have the writings of of Winston where where it says, you know, his thinking process. But to have the other perspectives that look upon him at, at that time and describe some of the interactions between him and other people, it just gives a fuller picture. So we have... The stories of Jesus written down in the four books of the gospel, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John definitely takes a very relational view of Jesus, looking at the human encounters between Jesus and other people. And so today, we are going to wrap up this, this, this series by, again, beginning at the end of the book of John, giving the reason as to why he wrote this book. He's already admitted Not everything is written down, but he wrote the things in particular that we have so that we can believe. And that's where I want us to begin is in John chapter 20 at the very end in verses 30 and 31. It says, again, John writing, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are recorded in this book. But these are written... That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So, the purpose of writing all these things, there were many things that He did, many things that were impactful, but not everything is written down. But in particular, the things that John has written down, He's written for the purpose that you may believe that He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the purpose of the book is that you may have life in his name by believing who he is. So he has chosen all the different things that John observed in the three years of journeying with Jesus. He's chosen in particular the things that he believes will help you understand who Jesus is, that you be convinced that he is who he says he is, and that you may then have life in his name. Consider if your life was written about posthumously. If somebody wrote about your life after your death, what do you think they would be writing about? Hopefully, your good points, right? I, I admitted last week that I am a master sinner. I could coach you on how to sin well. I, I, it's not that I choose to live in sin, it's just the nature that I carry, but I work under the, I submit myself to the work of the Holy Spirit, and so I'm a man under transformation and the work of God, and thankfully sin is becoming less and less evident and prosperous in my life, as I hope it is in your life. But these things that are happening in yours and my life, if they were given an account What would be the things that people would choose to write about? The means by how you can destroy relationships? How you can make people feel lesser? Or would your life be written about in a way that you built people up? That you helped those around you? That you served well? Now the reality is is that something like that kind of happens at, at our funerals, right? But here's the thing. Have you ever gone to a funeral where they highlighted your weaknesses? No. Because it's like an unwritten rule. You don't talk about the things they were not good at or the things that they did that may have not been helpful. No, we highlight what things were good. In this case, how in the world would you choose out of all the things? John has just said, If everything that Jesus did was written down, we would not have enough space in books to account for it. So then how would you choose that which you would write? Well, John, who considers himself to be the closest of all the disciples to Jesus, chooses the things that we've talked about over the last several months. And those things are basically the proclamations about Jesus either from those who testified to having seen him or by Jesus himself the first thing that John accounts for and he and he begins with in John chapter 1 is that he says that Jesus is the living word of God now i have never heard anybody being referenced as being the word like literally the Word. Now, I know there's been basketball players that have received such taglines, maybe like that, but literally, where it's describing that the essence of Him is that He is the breath and the revelation of God. By saying that Jesus is the Word of God, the living Word of God, He is literally saying that all that Jesus said is of God and from God. And, and that everything that Jesus did is the revelation of God and God in his heart. So even his actions declared who God is, as much as the words themselves that explained God. So to have begun this entire book, John starts with, listen, the person I'm about to talk about is the one who is the living example of God the very essence of God and therefore the very words of God then in John chapter 4 an interesting moment happens where Jesus is at a well and a woman a Samaritan woman comes to the well and she's going to draw water like she does every day but she's doing it at a time when there would likely not be anybody else there but she shows up and there's this Jewish man she's never seen before. She draws water from the well. But then this man says, would you give me a drink? Then she begins a conversation with them. And Jesus offers her water. Where she'll never thirst again. A living water. And it piqued her interest. So much so that she was asking questions. But then at the end, as her mind was kind of getting into places where it would require faith to, to believe the next part of the thinking process that she's experiencing with this man that's standing in front of her, she finally makes this statement and says, well, one day the Messiah will show up and he will explain to us these things. And then Jesus declares for the first time that he is indeed the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is a term that had been used out of the prophetic word of the Old Testament where for generations, the the Jewish people were anticipating this sent one from God. The one who will bring salvation. The one who will save them as they thought, merely from the tyranny of foreign rulers. Not realizing that the salvation would be from the wrath of God himself to protect them. From eternal destruction. But this Messiah, they knew was going to explain much from God. They knew that he was going to be provide provision and yes, even redemption. But they didn't understand the fullness of even the things they were saying. But they did know he would bring explanation. And in this moment in John chapter 4, the woman says, after hearing all these surreal things about living water, then she says, Only the Messiah can explain such a concept. A water that you'll never thirst again. And then Jesus declares, I am that Messiah who can explain such a thing. The next time Jesus opens his mouth about who he is and saying that I am statement, he says, I am the bread of life. You see, in the, in the Hebrew terminology, the understanding of bread of life, they would immediately be drawn to the season in their history when they were going through the wilderness for 40 years, trusting in the provision of God, because they were in a place where there was no food, there was no drink, only but by that which God provided. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, they understood That statement is equating himself with God. The one who provides that which only can provide life. He is the true provision and sustainer of life. Then he goes on later in the text. In another moment where he says, I am the light of the world. The light of the world. Which was very important at that time because it was dark times in their history. At this moment they are under the oppression of Rome. Rome. And under the wickedness of Herod, to have light in the midst of such a dark culture was truly revelatory to the soul. When there are so many confusing messages and paths of how one should live, isn't it light that we are drawn to that gives us means by knowing where to step next? Isn't it true that when the mind gets so foggy and clouded by all the disillusionment that can happen from doing life every day, that when light beams shoot through that and provides a direction, does it not provide hope? So when Jesus speaks to this crowd in the midst of a time where they're very confused, longing for a Messiah who can explain all things, Jesus becomes this light that begins to shatter the darkness all around it. You see, light is way more powerful than darkness. A single little pin light can penetrate the most darkest of space. And that's Jesus. He is that light that pierces through any of the confusing elements of our culture. And then he also goes on to say that in the same way that the the Israelites had had all these covenants that they had built off of, beginning with Adam and Abraham, Moses and David, that Jesus himself says, I was before them all. I am the I am. That moment that Moses had with the burning bush, when this Bush was not being consumed by the fire, and he was intrigued by it, but he gets near, and and he's told by a voice, this is holy ground, and he takes off his sandals, and as he approaches, he begins to wonder who this is, and it says, the voice declares, I am the I am. And when somebody asks, who sent you, say, I am has sent you. So when Jesus is using regularly this understanding of I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the Christ, it was not lost upon them that he was equating himself with God. Which then helps us understand why Jesus would say such things as I am the gate or I am the door. No one can enter into the presence of God. No one can enter into the family of God. Nobody can be welcomed into the eternal relationship with God except through me as the gate. They understood that through the experience of the shepherd terminology and that's where Jesus was sharing this is that he was also the good shepherd. They would put the sheep in these, in these pens, and, and the shepherd would guard the gate. There was no way that anything could get into the pen except through him. Therefore, only those allowed by him could enter. So, when Jesus says, I am the gate, they understood it to be exclusive. And he doubles down on it by saying it twice. I am the gate. You can't get to the Father except through me. I am the gate. I am the only way one can have a relationship with the Father God. Then he says, but I'm not just any shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am not one who will run from danger, but I will run into the danger. In fact, the text that describes the kind of shepherd that Jesus is, is one of tenacity. One that is willing to even go to the mouth of the lion, even when it seems like an impossible rescue. Jesus will be there. And he will be that shepherd that, out of compassion, care, and love, and in obedience to the Father, will rescue his sheep. Then Jesus speaks that which was very fascinating, and if you remember, this was the text that uh, Nick Todd, who's on our pastoral team, shared, where he makes—he was kind of jokingly saying, you know, that when somebody makes a, a funny statement, they might declare themselves something that they're not. And he said, "I am an avocado." Do you recall that statement? as strange as it is, and he would have fun with his children. Nick would talk about the moment that he would have with his children or with his wife when discussing such things. They would just declare themselves to be an object. It kind of brings laughter. It brings a little tongue-in-cheek. But when Jesus says that there is a future resurrection and that there is a life that can't be taken from you, when you experience that resurrection... The Jews understood this to be rooted in their teaching from the beginning of time, but to have Jesus declare himself as the resurrection. It's as strange as someone saying, I am an avocado. Jesus saying, if you are anticipating something beyond your death, that anticipation is longing for me. You see, it's innate in every human being that we long for the idea that death is not the finality of our understanding and our existence. We hope for life beyond the grave. We desire it. And when you decide that there is nothing beyond the grave, you are left to mental health issues as you despair from the fear of death. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is saying that there is only one place you'll find life beyond the grave, and that is me. And I will provide that life not only for eternity, but I'll provide life in the moment. And that's when he says later in the text, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus. There is no way to understand how to find life in the present except through Jesus, walking in truth. And there's no way to experience life and life abundantly now and for eternity except through Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the door and the gate. And he is the only way. But speaking of that life, it's not just for life eternal. It's life in the moment. And he says, I am the true vine. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. There are other fake ones that you, you attach yourself through to and, and you think you're going to find life there only to find that it withers and it dries up and it's not sustaining. But the person who is grafted into the vine, the true vine, will discover that there is life to be found today. You see, when you do not fear death because you know there's life beyond, it provides life today. It provides hope for today. It gives meaning and purpose for today. And God provides that lifeblood through the main vine, and that is his son, Jesus. Which then led to last week where Jesus makes the statement in John chapter 8, speaking of sin. And if you recall that we gave a definition of sin is that it's anything that would cause you to fall short of the moral standard of God by not only act or attitude, but also nature. You see, it's easy to call out sin when it's act or actions, doing something wrong. It's a little easier to say, yeah, it can be sin as well when there's a stinky attitude. But to call out your nature, the essence of your being, as being riddled with sin, that is something we can't escape. And that's consistent with Scripture. It says that we were born in sin, we were not born perfect, we fall short. And that's inherent. From the beginning of time, when Adam, who was created without sin, was created with a nature of, of being able to submit to God and be in his presence without fear of destruction. Because Adam was holy, as God is holy. But when he chose to sin, that separation between God and man began. And in all of us born sense inherit that sinful nature. So we're in need of something to bridge the gap between us and God. And Jesus says in John chapter 8 that that sin is something that will separate us from God. And that if you choose to not believe in him, the consequences of that sin is death. So Jesus says it in John chapter 8, 24 that your sin will cause death for you if you do not believe in who he is. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is a significant issue at play because of your sin. And the way to have a but, a conjunction, that separates you from that sin and brings you into unity of the Father is Jesus himself. And Jesus says, it is all on account of whether or not you believe in who I say I am. The consequences are significant. Because if you do not acknowledge as to who Jesus is and what that means for your life, he says your sin will destroy you. But if you acknowledge who he is and receive him for who he is and let him be Lord of your life, he promises life. Not only for eternity beyond your death, but life today. So, again, restating John chapter 20 that we just read. These things are written. All these encounters with Jesus that I just spoke through are written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. So be going to the left if if you don't know where Matthew is. But Matthew chapter 16. The last Jesus encounter we'll speak to in this series. I'd like to kind of give a context to this. To put it a little bit more into understanding of how you and I might experience this moment today. In our church, we have what we call life groups. Life groups are a group of people, usually between eight and twelve people, that will gather and they build, they do community together. They build relationships together. They get into the word of God together. They pray together. They do life together. They have fun together. You can sign up for a life group. We have that regularly offered here. There's a table out in our lobby or you can go online and hit interest in that into life groups. But it's where life happens. And so life in a life group is such as this. It begins at the shallow part of a text. Look at what Jesus does with his life group. Because keep in mind, he journeyed for three years doing life with 12 men. He did life with them. He ate with them. He talked with them. He laughed with them. He modeled for them. And this is what he asked them when you look at verse 13. When he was up in Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The disciples replied. His life group replies. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. <laughs> All right. So it's a good discussion, right? You're having that discussion and everybody's leaning in. Because it's always easy to talk about the perspective of other people. Third person so easy to talk about. Yeah, some people say this. This person might say that. But Jesus takes it a little deeper. And a good facilitator in a life group will do this. But what about you? What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, Peter's answer, as one commentarian said, When they say that, you know, some are Elijah, some say he's John the Baptist or others. It just proves you cannot discover a true opinion or decision concerning who Jesus is by taking a poll of the people. It just isn't going to work. You're going to find inconsistencies. And guess what? If you were to poll the American people who know Jesus' name, and you ask them, who do you say that Jesus is? Don't figure that you're going to get the accurate answer because it's going to be all over the map. So, the question, who do you say that Jesus is, is really what matters. Majority opinion, quite frankly, and I'm going to just use a term, that, a phrase that I grew up saying it's not going to matter a hill of beans what society says about Jesus, it means a whole lot. And your life depends on it when you answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Do you see him as the door, the exclusive gate into the family of God? Do you see him as the sustainer of life that your life cannot manage another day without him being the bread for your life? Do you see him as being the truth to provide that which of knowing how to live today and tomorrow? Do you see him exclusively as the way? So much so that because you love others in your oikos, that sphere of influence, that relational world you live among, that you care for them so much that because you believe Jesus is the way, you would not withhold the information about Jesus from them. You see the answer to the question that Jesus gives is really important to your life and it will have consequence not only for you but for others around you Simon Peter answered saying to this question saying you are the Messiah the son of the living God and Jesus replied Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, in other words, by another human being, but by the Father in heaven. So I've been praying that for those who hear this message, whether being in this room or at home or on the radio, that they'll hear this message and that the Father will reveal the identity of Jesus to everyone who hears this. Because your life is at stake. So I conclude. Who do you say Jesus is? Your life depends on it. Let's pray. Jesus, I recognize that there are many different moments where we enter into seasons of doubt or disillusionment, apathy, deep, dark crevices of our souls into deep, dark doubt. John was keeping it real. He understood that the best way For Jesus to be understood for who he is, is to tell these stories, these moments of where Jesus said who he is, in context of engaging people. We've looked at this, we've read what John has provided so that we can believe and have life. And so I ask, Lord, that you bring life. If there's somebody that's come into this room or is listening now that has never bent the knee and said, Jesus, I believe. I believe you are the Son of God, the one sent to save man from eternal judgment because of our sin. I want to give you a moment If you're a believer and already have trusted in Jesus, I want you in your quietness of your heart and mind now to speak to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is who you are. And I believe. You came into the listening mode of this sermon having never had a relationship with Jesus. You've just heard 14 weeks of highlighting who Jesus is. Is Jesus speaking to your heart now, revealing that he is indeed the Son of God? who loves you and wants to redeem you. And if you believe, would you declare that with your mouth and receive the salvation that he wants to give? Acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of saving and that you want to cling to his provision as the bread of life. going to ask that you remain seated here in this room we're going to sing a song but this is an opportunity to prepare your heart for communion and in scripture it says we're all those who call upon Jesus as Lord and Savior are welcome to this table to partake and so if you just gave your life to Jesus in those moments preceding what I'm saying now you're welcome to take with us For those of you in the room, we've provided for you juice and also some bread. At home, you can grab some juice real quick while we're singing this song and a piece of bread and we'll take together after we've sung parts of this song. In this moment for all those who understand exactly who Jesus is then we can appreciate that Jesus on the night he was, betra- he was betrayed that he gave us a means by which we would never forget not only who he is but what he did on our behalf he truly became the resurrection and the life because of what was going to happen over the following three days post this moment so in memory of that so that we would never forget and also in taking together brings unity in the body of Christ because we're all sinners saved by grace so on the night he was betrayed he held up the bread he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you the bread of life let's take together Is I can't help but think in this moment that when you held up that bread and you said this is my body which is for you <laughs> that they were perplexed they'd already heard you say that you're the bread of life they'd, that had been months before but now to hear you say this is body which is for you knowing that you, you were coming into Jerusalem and you'd said that you're coming to die and even then they were they were wanting to reject that possibility Oh, what they learned over the next 24 hours. That you would submit yourself to the cross. This body. And allow it to be beaten and bruised. But yet then to use your body to speak wonderful things on the cross. To the thief you said, today you'll be in the kingdom of heaven with me in paradise because he acknowledged who you were after mocking you hours before and then to say father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing those were acts made while you were in the body expressed great love and submission to something greater You submitted yourself to the will of the Father who desired to reconcile to himself a people. Not worthy of it, but a people that he had created and loved. And in the same way that there was wonderment about the statements about the bread, the wonderment only grew when he grabbed the cup of the vine. And he held it before him and said, "This is going to be a new covenant." A new covenant, a once and for all covenant. His blood that was going to be shed for him, for them. He was going to be the perfect lamb of God. This was Passover season where thousands of lambs were going to be Slaughtered for the sake of temporal coverage of sin. And Jesus is saying, No longer necessary. I'm going to be enough. Again, they had not yet seen the blood flow from out of Jesus' body, but they were about to. We on this side of the cross can appreciate what he said because we're now the objects of that work on the cross. So as we take of this cup, remembering the blood that was shed for us, and remembering that that blood is the coverage of our sin, let's do so with gratefulness in our heart. Amen, Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, thank you that we can take of this cup, knowing with confidence it's enough. I can't outsend the coverage of your blood. I can't outsin the coverage of your grace. And I'm so glad that I can't outrun your love. Lord, may this have spoken to the hearts of all those who have heard. And may you get glory in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we conclude by singing this
1: together? am going to sing, Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing this with us. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he one? Sing it out. Oh, what a savior. Oh, what a savior. Is it he? One? of Jesus
0: into the season of anticipation of Advent. Celebrating that which had been prophesied for thousands of years and then coming to fruition 2,000 years ago. And we get to know it from hindsight. I don't think we fully appreciate that we get the opportunity to celebrate the coming of the Messiah. Because for generations, they were waiting and longing, and we get to celebrate not only his coming, but his resurrection. And so those are the two seasons we, traditionally as a church, celebrate significantly. It's because Jesus is worthy of our celebration. And so beginning next week, we will anticipate the ultimate celebration of his coming. And we will talk about the good news that it is. I trust that today as we've kind of journeyed a little bit with with John's view. And understanding and experience of watching Jesus for three years. Writing the things down for us. So that we can discover that just Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And that by believing in him, we can experience life. So may you experience life this week. Because you're leaning in to the son of God. If you'd like to talk with someone after this service, we have the encounter room to my left, your right, where there'll be people in there that'd be glad to pray with you and to talk with you further about Jesus. But go knowing that the light of the world has come and is here and shining through us even now. Amen. You're dismissed.